This is episode 16 with Jorge Baron. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My guest is a national figure in the immigration debate and a forefront fighter for immigrant rights. He was born in Bogota, Colombia, and moved to the U.S. when he was 13. As the son of a TV legend in Colombia, it seemed like he was destined to the entertainment business. But instead, his career took a different path, and now he's the executive director for one of the largest, if not the largest, immigrant legal services and advocacy nonprofits in the country. In 2008, Jorge was appointed by Governor Gregoire to serve on Washington's New Americans Policy Council. In 2009, Puget Sound Business Journal selected Jorge as one of 40 under 40, which highlights for business and nonprofit leaders under the age of 40. And these are only some of his honors. In this episode, we'll talk with Jorge about his life in Colombia, growing up under the spotlight of his famous father, and why he changed his career making movies in Hollywood to fight for immigrant rights. We'll also discuss what it takes to run a successful nonprofit organization and learn more about Jorge's future aspirations as he continues to do his part to change the world. Jorge, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you, Alonso. So I wanted to get started uh, by going back to your native country in Colombia. Um, your full name is Jorge Luis Barón. Uh, you're the oldest of three children, uh, all Jorge's, and your father also happens to be uh, Jorge, uh, and he he's a big TV and media personality in Colombia. And I know I saw that uh, sometimes uh, your father would bring you or uh, or and your siblings in his show to ho to host it with him. Do you still remember vividly those memories? I do, I do. I mean, I think that was uh, some of my earliest memories were being in uh, in the studio and uh, participating. I mean, I started when I was uh, six or seven years old uh, to be on the, it was usually the, the Christmas, the holiday specials um, that um, he would put us on. And um, that led to, uh, to a different role in another show uh, that had been going on in Colombia for a long time called Animalandia. Um, and so I ended up working on that show for, for several years, basically until I came to the U S. So that was like a six year, six year run of being this, uh, this, uh, you know, child host of this TV show on Sunday mornings. How old were you when you were doing that? Stuff? Well, I started, I think it was around, I was, I was around seven years old that I was on, on, um, on the TV. I, I will say that my dad, um, still reminds me that I was actually on a, uh, as a baby, maybe like a one-year-old baby, there's this picture of me on a on a little ad for um, like breaking a pinata for some some store. So so he says that it was actually earlier that I was on the media, um, but uh, but yeah, that was uh, very much from the very beginning of my my childhood that I was involved in media. You're standing next to your father, wearing the same clothes in front of a TV audience for the first time. You're super young. What what was that like? Well, you know, it, it, like I think for a lot of people, you know, you you just don't know anything different, right? You're just you know following what your what your dad does, and that's just the reality that that I grew uh, grew up into. And you know, I always appreciated you know how you know people in in Colombia when we were walking around, you know, people would come up to my dad and say like, "Can you sign an autograph?" and 
and you know people really appreciated his work and so that was always nice um i think in school i was i i'd get a little you know teasing from from my classmates uh about you know oh you're the kid with the you know tv dad whatever um but you know i still always very very proud of the work that my dad did so so for me it was it's definitely a positive thing what did you want it to be when you were growing up You know, I you know, I think like many many children I probably went through like a lot of different stages. I I I you know, thought about being a pilot. You know, those kind of things for a childhood. But I but you know, clearly I think certainly my dad was very encouraging like, you know, TV business. That's the family business mm-hmm. and I think his his whole thing, I think I Um, you know, the the whole reason that he named us all Jorge, and he's very open about this, was because the company was named Jorge Baron Televisión. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, one of you is going to end up taking over the company, and so I don't, so I'm going to name you all Jorge just just in case, right? <laughs> and so that was like his, uh, his. so so it was basically, I always I always talked, I always I still uh, joke with my dad about the fact that, you know, the company is like his oldest daughter, and we were all named after her. <laughs> you know? And um, and so, you know, and, 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 you know, as it turned out, one of us did end up going back, My, my youngest brother, uh, Jorge Andres, ended up uh, going back to work for him and still working with my dad. Nice. Um, so, so, it, so it worked out to some extent, but, uh, but the rest of us got stuck with the, with the name. <laughs> Now, uh, I know at some point uh, your parents divorced. And you, I read that you lived mostly on the exterior, like not actually in Colombia, and you would only see your dad on, on vacations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what type of relationship do you have with your father? I think it's been very positive. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because my dad... Um, My dad, you know, I think he clearly, he was very, you know, open about the fact that he wanted us to come back and work with him. And, and I think one of the things that it's, it's, it's funny because it's almost like history repeats itself because my dad, um, his dad, my, my grandfather, who I never met because he died before I was born, um, you know, was kind of a successful entrepreneur Um, in a small town in Colombia, so kind of low, you know, n- not as successful as my dad ended up being, but, um, and he wanted my dad to be part of the business. And my dad kind of rebelled and left and went to Bogota and started doing his own thing. And, and they had a falling out and my, my grandfather mm-hmm. didn't um, appreciate that my dad went off. And so it's funny because it's kind of like history repeating itself, right? My dad wanted me to be part of the family business and I've kind of, you know, held off and done something else. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's just always been, it was always important for me to be able to do, um, while I appreciated all the work that my dad did, I always felt like if I went back and worked for him, it would always be like his business and it would be his things. And I would never gain the confidence of having done things on my own that I thought were very important. So for me, it was very important to sort of strike out on my own and mm-hmm. develop my own things. And I thought, well, maybe at some point I will decide to go back. Um, and it hasn't worked out that way. But um, but I've always uh, appreciated what my dad has um, has done and the work that he's done and the fact that he started, you know, from, from basically nothing mm-hmm. uh, to create the business that he ended up developing. Um, when you were 13, uh, I feel like you, you made a more permanent move uh, to the U.S. Uh, with your mother, Martha. Um, Now you work in immigration. Now uh, I, I was wondering, uh, what was your immigration story like, or journey, or experience? Yeah, and that's one of the things. That, I mean, that certainly I I think a lot about when with the work that I do now because I I I'm very conscious of how privileged my experience was. Uh, certainly compared to a lot of people that I work with now. How did you immigrate? It? So so what happened was that my you know this and this was a. A time in Colombia when the situation was getting, you know, difficult, mm. and one of the things that happened around that time was that, and it was happening to a lot of families, was that there was a lot of extortion 
uh, attempts. And, and that actually happened in my family where they called him because my dad was sort of well known. Mm-hmm. They uh, started, um, you know, some, some people and it was, it ended up being people that actually that had, had previously worked with him uh, as it turned out. Um, started making threats that they were going to, you know, kidnap us, the kids. Um, we weren't quite aware of this. We kind of learned about it later. Um, and so I think there was a sense from my parents that they were kind of worried about us and the situation. And so my mom, I think kind of separately was also, you know, my, my parents were having problems. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was kind of deciding, okay, I'm probably going to separate from, from, from uh, my dad. Mm-hmm. And um, she came up with this plan of going to do, a, she had finished uh, college, but wanted to do a master's degree. And so she started looking into the opportunity of doing a master's program in the U.S. And so she um, started, you know, applying for that. And the way that they talked to us about it was, you know, we were going to go with my mom to study English and spend a couple of years in the U.S. and then come back to, to Colombia. And they didn't tell us initially that they were separating because uh, I think they wanted to make it easier for us. I think from my dad's perspective, he felt a little bit safer that we would be out of the country for a couple of years given, you know, the, the threats that, that we'd had. And so that was what happened. And so we came to the U.S. with the idea that we were just going to be here for a couple of years and that my mom was going to finish this master's degree. And specifically, was it a student it's, visa? It was a, so we came on a student visa. And then it became a permanent residence. Right. Yeah. So what happened was we came here on a student visa. My mom started um, doing that, uh, her program. And then after about six months, she said, you know, I'm actually, you know, we're, we're breaking up and we're not going to be together yeah. anymore. And that was, you know, of course, like for many kids that, that go through that, you know, painful experience. Mm-hmm. And then my mom started dating somebody here in the U.S. and, and eventually got married and married a U.S. citizen who, um, mm. who uh, sponsored us for, for uh, a green card. And so, you know, and but but just the even idea of coming on a student visa is is a is an avenue that is for the vast majority of people in the world mm-hmm. is not a possibility. You, you know, we, we had resources. We had the ability to do that. We had my dad who could you know support us. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's not an opportunity that most people have. And um, so I'm very conscious of the fact that that uh, my, my immigration story is very privileged compared to most people. Now, you went to college, and then I think in college you decided that you um going to be pursuing at some point a uh, film. Uh, and actually, you were part of uh, directing some movies uh, in Hollywood. One, for example, that I saw in 1998, you were the assistant director of The Mask of Sorrow with Antonio Banderas, which was produced by Steven Spielberg. And I thought that was great. Mike, uh, I was curious to learn more about how did you become interested in making movies? So the funny part is that in college, I actually wasn't initially thinking that I was going to do film. Hmm. My dad had actually been very pushing me into doing like business. And so um, the, where I went to college, I didn't have, uh, there wasn't like a, a, a formal business program. So I ended up in the economics uh, department and I was doing economics and it was very kind of high level academic. So I never really felt like I fit in there. And then sort of towards the tail end, there there wasn't a lot of film stuff at at, in my, at, at, at uh, the university. And so I ended up taking just the last few classes that they had at the end. And then I realized, I was like, you know, I actually kind of like this. And so I started applying for programs, um, you know, going to the career center and literally just going through the brochures and seeing. And I found this program uh, called the Assistant Director's Training Program, which which is still in place, which is basically like a, a, a apprenticeship program, right, that, that you have to apply. But it, I didn't realize at the time how competitive it was. I just applied. And then later I find out that it was very hard to get in. 
And um, and so I thought, oh, well, it's not going to happen. And then at the last minute, I, I got in and I got this opportunity to work in Los Angeles um, in these big film productions. So I worked on the TV show ER, which at the time was like the most highly rated show on TV mm-hmm. and um, things like The Mask of Sorrow. Um, and I was, you know, my role, I want to make sure very clear, I was very low in the totem pole there. Uh, so I was an assistant director trainee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later I, I did become an assistant director, but it was like a chain of like four different assistant directors. And I was at the bottom of this yeah, chain. Yeah, but it's a matter of time, right? <laughs> You're already in. So. Right. So, yes, but I was certainly on the pathway to be able to continue working in that business. And, um, and you know, it was completely fun. I did it for five years and it was, you know, for a young person right out of college, it was an amazing experience. You got to travel. I was in Mexico. Um, I got to work in a different, a lot of different places here in the U.S. and um, and it was an amazing experience. You know, working with these like big stars, Tom Cruise, and you know, uh, uh, folks like Antonio Banderas and mm-hmm. um, and Anthony Hopkins. But um, but after a while, that sort of I started looking at that and saying like, okay, is this really what I would do for the rest of my life? And and started uh, changing that that notion. Now, I thought that was a, an interesting part of your story. Is you you, you didn't find it meaningful enough, um, but I also uh, read that you also found it difficult to maybe start a family because you were shooting for six months uh, in a row. Uh, did that Was that part of your decision of shifting uh, careers because you've, you found yourself, well, you know, I don't want to f- fall into the same footsteps that my father because I saw firsthand that maybe the entertainment business and that type of stuff makes it difficult to keep a relationship or have like a normal family life yeah i think there was a multiple reasons that i that i thought i couldn't stay there i mean you know the the part that made working in the film industry exciting was also what made it seem difficult in the long term so you know mm-hmm. when i was working um when i got the job to work at the Mascosora in mexico i was literally given like you know three days notice where they were like okay we're gonna start this production mm. and you gotta move to mexico for six months and wow. three in three days and, you know, as a single person, you know, with, you know, just a studio apartment, I was like, great, you know, like I'll pack yeah. my bags and I go. <laughs> but if you have three kids. Um, and so what I saw oftentimes is a lot of the people that I was working with uh, who were kind of long term that, you know, it was really a lot of sort of people who didn't have the mm-hmm. people who are uh, in the pathway that I would be in. Um, a lot of folks who, um, who you know, weren't able to maintain family relationships. And so that certainly weighed on me. But you know, there's also there was also a lot of things. Um, I mean, I think one of the 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 stories that encapsulates part of the reason that I uh, changed careers was um, working in the industry. You know, we were advancing a lot of stereotypes. I worked on the show, a TV show called JAG, which is kind of a predecessor to what is now NCIS. It's the same um, mm-hmm. the same producers, and so uh, the story was was actually that it was supposed to happen in Lima, Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so this was the, the script and it was about the story about, you know, one of the guards of the embassy, American embassy being mm-hmm. killed by somebody. And so then, uh, I show up to the set and I, I read the script and I show up to the set and it's in Los Angeles, right? In the back lot of some, of, of a studio. And it's like, you know, a stereotypical Mexican village, right? I mean, literally with like a little donkey cart going through. And this is supposed to be downtown mm-hmm. Lima, right? And I, and I, and I went to my boss at the time and I said, you know, listen, I've never been to Lima. I'll be honest, right? Like I've never been to Lima, so I can't really tell you for sure. 
but I'm from Bogota, which is like, you know, smaller than Lima and it's like a major metropolis. And <laughs> I know it does not look like this. And I feel like we're like perpetuating the stereotype as like the backward Latin America. And he said, you know, you're right. You know, this is terrible, but you know what? This is what the job is. And, mm. you know, and, and I, and at that moment I said, you know, I just, I feel like I'm like, you know, doing something wrong by being part of this. And um, and so that was also part of the disillusionment in some of those areas. And not to say that that happens in, in all areas, but there's clearly um, some reinforcement of stereotypes in a lot of, you know, uh, sort of mainstream Hollywood productions mm -hmm. that I was really uncomfortable with. What were the biggest things you think you learned during your experience doing that? Well, I, I think, you know, you had to deal with – there were a lot of things. I mean, I think there was a lot of um, – you know, being able to respond to changing things. I mean, in our in our job, we just had to deal with all kinds of like last minute things in the Masco Soro. You know, we were I was in charge of dealing with like the actors, um, and um, we had you know last minute. Uh, we remember we were driving into this town where we were going to do this uh, shoot, and then they had a bunch of uh, there was a, a lot of people from like a local village who came and blocked the access because they were upset about the fact that there had been some like special effects explosions the day before that had broken some windows mm -hmm. in the town and so they try to like uh boycott the the production and mm -hmm. so and so just being able to like respond kind of on the fly at the last minute i think it gave me a lot of um, experience with just managing people because it was so much of the work i had to do was like manage like both the you know the big stars and like sue them and try to get them to do what i wanted to do Um, while at the same time dealing with like you know extras and 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 people on the set, and so I think it gave me it, it, you know increased my confidence of being able to handle those situations, even dealing with people with you know fragile egos sometimes. Yeah, and so I think that my interpersonal skills I think developed a lot during those five years for sure. Now fast forward, you're sitting in one of the most prominent schools, uh, studying law in Yale. What happened in between? In then. <laughs> Well, I, I think I decided, you know, again, I decided that the film production was, was not what I wanted to do. And so I started looking and trying to figure out what else I was going to end up doing. And one of the things that I did uh, that, that actually the work in, in, in Los Angeles uh, really helped me do was to travel a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It was the, 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 the flip side of being sent to Mexico for six months was that th then sometimes you had like these two months where you weren't working. And you had worked, you know, terribly hard, but, you know, saved some, some money for six months. And so, you know, young guy, I was like, all right, I'll go travel Europe back at, uh, packing for two, two months mm -hmm. or Southeast Asia or whatever. And uh, it was um, it was amazing. I think that was uh, that was definitely one of the big benefits of, of doing that work. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most formative trips that I did was to Eastern Europe and got to experience, uh, you know, the concentration camps in Auschwitz and, and, uh, yeah, before you move, yeah. uh, you know, t tell me what was that experience? Like, how do you felt? I mean, I can't imagine uh, being in one of those places. It has to be incredibly moving. Well, and I had been, you know, had studied a lot of that history in college. And so this was kind of, that's part of the reason that I wanted to mm -hmm. go was because I wanted to to see the things that I had studied and read in books. And um, I think, you know, nobody who who sees, you know, that place is going to be uh, the same after they walk out of there. Was it like random or do you do you plan that in advance? No, I definitely wanted to. I mean, I made a very conscious point that I wanted to visit um, places in, in Eastern Europe that had to do with the Holocaust uh, because mm. I had I had I had done a lot of um, studying and I had taken a class and it really impacted me at the time. 
And so I had this like deep interest in that in that time period. Were you looking to get rooted as far as grounded? Well, I, I just, you know, I, I think it was an understanding and I think I've always sort of had it of, you know, the way that, you know, human beings treat each other. And this seemed to be, I mean, I think the reason is just, it just seems so, um, you know, such an extreme way. I mean, it's it's just hard to even put, no, yeah. describe in words. And so, you know, I, I, I just felt like I needed to understand it. I think a lot of people would not want to experience it because it's so bad, but I feel like it's almost like a, I almost see it as like a moral responsibility to mm -hmm. understand what we, we as human beings have done to, to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, and and frankly, I think part of that was that it became that became the root of saying I want to work in human rights issues because I want to work towards preventing these kinds of things. And uh, you know, at the time, I was very sort of idealistic, right? I mean, but 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 I but it did become the root of my thinking of working. Initially, I thought you know I'm going to do international human rights work type of thing, mm -hmm. and that was around the time also that the you know, the, it was uh, shortly after the, the Rwandan um, genocide. And so there had been, you know, episodes again where, you know, people had been, had been um, you know, killed in, in, in just these horrible events. And so I wanted to be involved in, in some way in, in encountering that. Was there anything when you were there that you saw that moved you the most? You know, I think probably there the thing that moved me the most, um, a couple of things. So there, there's there's these rooms that they've preserved in, in in Auschwitz where they have the belongings of the people who are killed, and so the and the Germans were, you know, the Nazis were very, um, you know, methodical in like cataloging and putting all these things, and so you see all the, you know, the shoes, the clothes, the bags, and and then just seeing those things made you rec you know made you you know understand that this is not a hypothetical this is not abstract right these are human beings who had their own lives and had their um you know all the things that we would have right um their belongings their their jewelry their uh items personal items photos and and seeing those things there Um, just brought it, uh, you know, brought it to like a personal level that mm -hmm. all, all of the, you know, millions of people who perished, uh, it was just a uh, very, very powerful and something that really impacted me and, and definitely changed the path of my life. Mm -hmm. And what was your, uh, follow up, uh, strategy after that? Because it seems like, how do you end up choosing jail? I mean, it's super tough to get in. Did, were you already like a super smart student and had like... <laughs> Or was, was there any challenge that you set yourself up? Well, for? so so when I came back, I remember from a trip that was in, in 1998, and I started, you know, I, I, st I was still working, and I still needed to make a living, but it really started me thinking, okay, what am I going to do? Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to be, I, I came back really much less interested in doing things like being worried about whether the actress uh, <laughs> yeah. trailer was had AC or not. And so I started looking at options and, and I started thinking about law school, actually, because I started thinking of international human rights law as one way that, you know, you could fight back against um, the kind of abuses that, that happened at that time. And so I started researching and attending, I, I signed up to go to these conferences that were happening. And I think one of the critical ones uh, was uh, one that happened in, in, in San Francisco area. And um, I saw a gentleman named Steve Bright uh, speak at this conference. And Steve Bright was 
the director, uh, um, longtime director of an organization called the Sun Center for Human Rights mm-hmm. that handles, uh, that represents people who are facing the death penalty. And I heard him speak and he was just so amazing, so inspirational. I literally went up to him and said, you know, I want to go to law school and I want to work for you. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I, w- I hadn't even applied to law school. And so he was very gracious and was like, oh, of course, you know, whatever. Um, um, but it inspired me to really pursue this idea of applying to law school. And so I applied to a bunch of law schools and I didn't think that you know i think i didn't think i have a shot because i thought well how are they going to look at these five years in hollywood they're gonna like this is like had nothing to do with the law uh but i think later i i was told that you know it actually made my applications interesting because it, it looked very different from the rest of the applicants so it actually gave me a better chance of getting in and i was very fortunate to get that opportunity to uh to attend yale are there some things that you've been able to transfer from your experience as an assistant director doing movies into into the new world that you were embarking doing uh non-profit and defending uh, immigrant rights well i i definitely think so i think that you know i I've, and i was talking to some uh a college student recently who was saying like you know well you know the 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 paths and and, and i think one of the messages that i always tell sort of younger people that i that i meet is you know, every experience that you have is going to help you down the mm-hmm. line. You know, even if the this, even if the line of work that you do is completely different. You know, I mean, I learned things being a a busboy a summer in 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 college um, that I think are still important, and 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 some of them had to do about you know um, how to how to treat others right and the way that I was treated at the time, and um, and I definitely learned a lot during that time about how to. Um, you know, again, the, the interpersonal relationships and, but also, you know, obviously about, you know, communication and, and, uh, and coordination of, you know, a lot of the work that we had to do was to bring in people together and, and to think ahead. A lot of the things that we had to do was to think ahead about what could go wrong, right? What problems could we see if we're going to do a scene, you know, with, uh, Catherine Seda Jones, the actress who's doing that, like we need, we know that she takes, you know, two hours to get, uh, her, uh, all her makeup and dress. So you got to be thinking ahead, like, okay, we got to get her started now if she's going to be ready then. Mm-hmm. So there are some skills that I definitely have transferred in my, in my, um, in my work now. Mm-hmm. And in, in, I think around 2006, you joined the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. And then two years later, you ended up taking over. And the, the reason uh, why you did that is because you had a hard time uh Telling people no, and by but for the ones that don't know what the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, they they offer legal services to low-income immigrants and refugees, right? Um, you took over the organization, grew it uh, to seventy people and six point five million in donations, which is incredible because I think you started with a team of thirty-five or so. Um, do you have any experience managing a team before taking over that role? No, I I always joke around that, uh, but but not completely joke around that that I feel like the board of directors committed uh, malpractice in hiring me at the time <laughs> because I had I had very little experience. I had been the, I had been temporarily the supervisor of the Tacoma office, mm-hmm. and you know I'd had experience sort of managing teams when I was in in, in the film industry, but it was completely different. And so you know this idea of of being the director of a nonprofits uh, definitely, if you look on paper, I was not prepared for. Uh, and there was a lot of on-the-job learning about it. Um, I think the board, you know, saw that I was really enthusiastic and that I could communicate well 
what we did and had this passion of sharing the, the, the experiences that I had as a staff attorney. Um, so that's, I think, I, and I think that was a critical thing. And I think it was helpful in working with the rest of the team to have that experience of having been come internally from the organization and become the director rather than having somebody come from the outside to become the director. I think that was helpful, but it was definitely, you know, the first few years, they're definitely a challenge. And I, you know, I think I'm still learning. I mean, I think there's, this is a job. I mean, a lot of people ask about it and that, that, you know, you, you never stop learning and, and there's just so much to do. Um, and of course, you know, with the political environment as it is, you, you always have to kind of keep, uh, keep an eye on making sure that you're, you're thinking things through and, and coming up with different ways to, to respond. You also had a passion, uh, driven by your, a modus of helping more and more people to grow the operation and and you, you know you were able to do that uh, and especially the, with the donations helped uh, what has been your most effective channel to grow those well i think that it's been you know being able to communicate um what we do and i think one of the things that i've learned over the last few years um and especially in the beginning of my time at at, at uh, nerp has been that you know, when you're work, doing the work, um, you can see it, you know, day in and day out. I mean, you, you're, you know, if you're, when I was a staff attorney working with people at the Northwest Detention Center who are facing deportation hearings, mm -hmm. you know, and I had that experience of having to like say to people, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Um, and then knowing that, you know, you, the cases you take on, you can make a big difference and, and you can change the outcome, basically, that you can help the person be able to show to the immigration court that you that you qualify and what a difference that makes to people. And I think the the that that what happens sometimes in the nonprofits is that we we are kind of afraid of like you know what in you know, the business world is known as marketing um of like selling ourselves right because that sounds kind of you know like that's not proper like people should just know that our work is important and they should just fund it right and i think one of the things that i realized that that's not how you know life works right i mean you might be doing very good work um uh, but if you're not communicating it effectively if you're not conveying and if you're not um, showing the the funders, you know, why your work is important. Your work may be very effective uh, and actually making a profound difference, but you're not going to be able to sustain it or be able to expand it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the lessons that I think I've learned over time is the importance of being able to communicate um, the, you know, to, to funders, to government entities that provide grants, to foundations and to donors the impact that it has and talking about, you know, people and particularly for us uh, attorneys, we're, we're terrible about that because we're big about process, right? Like, oh, we apply for a green card and we file this form and, yeah, blah, 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 yeah. and people are like, they fall asleep. Of course. And so talking about the fact that, you know, keeping a family together, the things that mm -hmm. we all can connect with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, keeping a mother from being separated from her child. That's the stuff that I think people react to emotionally. And um, and which is ultimately the reason we do our work. We don't we don't do our work because we want to file immigration forms. Uh, yeah. We do our work because we want to keep families together. Now that the operation is much bigger, do you do you guys still have to say no to people? We still have to say no to far too many people. Do absolutely. Ever, do you ever do that personally? I do. Um, because How do you deal with that? Well, it's terrible. I mean, I, oftentimes, like, so so we have this, for example, we have this client grievance process where people, um, clients who feel like our, our, you know, our staff has not, um, you know, helped them appropriately will, will you know, can, can file a complaint. And, 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 and so ultimately those complaints come to me. And um, 
and a lot of the complaints sometimes are because we're having to say no and people are frustrated with our staff because we've had to decline um, taking on um, a case for representation. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that. I, I think that for us, it's, it's very, or, or, we, or in some areas we have a wait list and so people have to wait a long time and they're frustrated about the fact that they're on the wait list. And I take ownership for that. I mean, I, I think that we, um, I think it's important for us to always help people understand that it's, that we agree with them, that it's, that it's terrible that they don't have representation and that, or that they're having to wait for an attorney. Um, I think it's, um, you know, we have to be cognizant that that's, that's a problem. Um, we're trying to solve it. We're trying to have more people be able to respond to that. And, and, and there's been things like the city and the county creating this legal defense fund that will help along uh, those lines. Um, but I think you need to, you know, not just say, well, that's, that's tough. That's the way it is. Uh, but just to help acknowledge the fact that their frustration in the sense that they should not be, you know, left to fend for themselves is, is, is actually true. I mean, and so I always start off with saying like, you're right. Um, and, and here's the challenge that we have, and we're trying to sort of prioritize cases for these reasons. And, and I'm sorry that that means that you may not get an attorney right away. Uh, but please understand that the reason for that is because there's other people who either, you know, came earlier or have a more complicated case or are facing even harsher consequences, um, um, that we have to prioritize. And usually when we have those conversations, people do understand because they, um, you know, they appreciate that there's just, you know, too much work. You, you have, a I think, a decade now working uh, for Northwest Immigrant Rights around there. And what do you think will take to double the size of the operation from 70 to 140, let's say? Well, you know, it's, it's something that's interesting because I always, for me, it's not about, you know, the organization or the, or the numbers uh -huh. of people that we have just by itself. I'm, my goal is just to be able to say yes to everybody who walks in our door to be able to not have people wait. Uh, I mean, you know, we often talk about that in some ways, like we would love to sort of put ourselves out of business on, on some level that we, we don't have to have this, these systems mm -hmm. that people have to go through uh, or that we don't have these, you know, clearly not have detention centers where people are facing deportation without an attorney. We think if there is going to be an immigration court system, the government should be providing, you know, public defense systems in those settings. Um, um, and so, you know, that would be like my vision, you know. <laughs> Uh, so my so my my goal is not necessarily for the organization to be bigger. Uh, that's where the advocacy comes, in, right. right? And that's where we're trying to sort of advocate to change the systems. But at the same time, I'm also cognizant that you know the current political reality is that you know people are at the detention center, they are facing deportation, and they they are calling us every day for help. And so I feel our responsibility to them to try to make sure that we develop the resources and have the staff to be able to respond to their uh, situation because it's urgently needed. So I think what, uh, to answer your question, I think what's going to be needed is, is, is more of what's, what we've seen over the last few years, which is just the community locally mm -hmm. to respond and to say, you know, we, we want somebody to be there for that person. When they make that call, we want to make sure that somebody's mm. able to respond to them and that people don't have to wait um, to get an attorney or, or don't, get an attorney and have to face immigration court on their own. I know your days may not ever be normal, but for those that are normal, what do they, what do you said? What does a normal day look like for you uh, leading the organization? 
Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, of course, having, you know, this meetings and, and conversations internally for the staff um, to, you know, deal with planning uh, for down the road or figuring out responses that we're going to do internally to respond to to the needs of the community. Uh, we also, I think a lot of spend a lot of our time, a lot of my time on external communication. So whether that's in, in, in meetings with our partners and trying to figure out collaborations, we got a, we got a new collaboration right now, for example, called the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network that's trying to sort of bring organizations together to figure out how we can collectively respond to, to the new challenges under this uh, administration. And then, you know, of course, I end up spending a lot of time with, with funders and donors. Um, so making you know, asks and and following up and reporting back on on the powerful impact that their contributions have made. So it's a, a combination. Usually, a lot of conversations with with uh, with folks, which which I enjoy. I mean, I th- certainly when we get a chance to have uh, those discussions personally with with people who contributed, um, it's this kind of love fest in some ways because I think that the the folks mm-hmm. who are supporting the work are very grateful to us usually about you know, they're saying things like you know thank you for the work that you do to help and then and then we're saying like well it couldn't be possible it literally couldn't be possible if it wasn't for the support that we get from the community so um so i think that's a that's a part of the work that i've come to really appreciate because i i do see it as um uh, you know that this is uh this work is a a you know, partnership between, you know, funders, donors, the staff, and our clients uh, who need assistance. Well, at the same time, I, I, we're not satisfied uh, in, in any way with, with what's happening right now because the, the situations that our clients face are, um, you know, just so unjust uh, in so many different levels. And so we are always conscious of trying to figure out how we can, you know, both be uh, working, you know, within a very flawed system to try to address the needs of individual people right now, but also how do we, you know, challenge that system and, 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 and make sure that it changes. What do you think makes a successful nonprofit leader? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think, uh, you know, listening, um, and, and following through, um, and, and setting good expectations. Um, I, I think that, um, we, um, we need to be driven um, by the communities we serve, and I think that's one of the I think that's one of the challenges with with nonprofits. Um, that um, I know I know there's there's been some critiques, uh, a number of people critique sort of the, the what's now becoming known as the nonprofit industrial complex, right? That the, the nonprofit organizations be, you know start. Um, become sort of entities and become sort of part of the system and um and i and i will say that's that's a struggle for us because because you know especially as you become larger you know we started from this kind of very grassrootsy mm-hmm. um response to a crisis in the 1980s and as the organization has grown larger you have to f- start forming these structures and and i am conscious of the fact that you start becoming this entity that um that I, I I think I want to make sure we're grounded in the client community and the and the and the needs of that community and responding mm-hmm. to those needs, uh, but that we don't you know perpetuate some of the um, injustices that are that are making life harder for our clients, 
and we're certainly not perfect in that regard. Uh, but but I think that that part is very important that we're always focused. Uh, you know, I always at least strive to make decisions based on what I think is in the in the long term best interest of the clients that are coming to us. So in one in one way, you have to handle the chaos sometimes that comes with uh, getting in 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 this type of uh, work now. Uh, one thing that I was interested in is, do you have any people, heroes, sheroes for social of social change that have inspired your work or that you look up to? Well, I um, I think the two people that come to mind are um, Brian Stevenson, uh, who is the director of the Equal Justice Initiative in um, mm -hmm. in Alabama, mm -hmm. and and Steve Bright as well, um, who is my who is my mentor, mm -hmm. uh, because um, you know I think both of them have you know been able to to do that work of of being able to communicate effectively and and helped bring. Uh, you know, people who in the political environment tend to be, you know, almost despised, you know, the folks who are facing uh, a um, uh, death penalty charge and who, you know, literally society is saying, like, we want to eliminate you from the human race. Uh, and that's probably as harsh of a, you know, as a, as a government, as a country or a state, we want to, you know, kill you. And, um, and so they've you know they're able to you know take situations like that and be able to translate it and to highlight the injustices within that system and the criminal justice system and, in a very powerful way and um to me you know i always look up to them as as people who i see as as leaders in 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 the movement of social justice um you know there's a there's a lot of people that are doing amazing work around the country but i but i i've just come to know their work um, very well and had the opportunity to work with 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 Steve and just know their passion on a personal mm -hmm. level and um, have come really to appreciate their work and in the story that the Seattle Times published about you there was a section where uh, the writer talks about you know how you may seem different than your father but she didn't have access to the Spanish articles that I have and when I was looking into some of the interviews of your dad, uh, I saw that, you know, he, one of his dreams was to be an ambassador of Colombia. And then I think somewhere there I also read that even some people were asking him to run for president of Colombia. You know, it, and for me, it seems like a natural progression based on some other local people that I've met who've done the nonprofit before. Do you see yourself at some point pursuing a governmental position of some sort? Um, you know... I mean, I guess that could be a leverage for what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've thought about it. I mean, I think that there's, there's, um, you know, I see the policy, you know, decisions and the way that that the things are are made, and I and I know I've had the opportunity to sort of learn through my work how the systems operate in such a way that that I I could bring perspective some a, a perspective to that. I'm not, I'm. I'm not sure uh, because I also see sort of so the, some of the limitations of being in government and some of the advocacy that can be done from the outside that I think right now I feel is the right place for me to be, particularly at this time. Um, and I, you know, I, I think frankly the thing that that uh, keeps me from doing it is that I I I 
you know, some people may dispute this, but I, I honestly don't have a big ego. And so I, and I feel like sometimes like to be, to be a politician, you kind of have to have this idea that like, you know, I, I really, I'm the best person for this job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes I, I hold back from thinking about that. And I, I'd want to encourage uh, other folks to, to do that. I, 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 I think the, that's the other reason is that I actually see a lot of really powerful uh, younger people from than me at this point uh, who are who could be amazing people out there um, and who could be leaders in that way and so I you know I, I think if, if an opportunity develops for that I I will you know consider it but uh, but I also think that you can make uh, some some pretty powerful change uh, from 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 outside mm-hmm. um, another section I wanted to cover with you is is one that I uh, I've been looking into, which is the idea of information overload. Uh, there's just so much going on, uh, more than just immigrant rights. And I'm sure you're bombarded and you have interest in all the other issues as well. Um, but the thing about you is you're also seen as a source for opinion on the topic when the debate gets heated. Do you filter the news to the point where you're only consuming stuff about immigration or do you have a open door for what you're consuming the whole day? I, I mean, I do have an open door just because I think there's so many issues that are going to impact our clients. You know, I mean, even if it's like healthcare issues, mm-hmm. oftentimes those things uh, impact our clients. Uh, but you're right. It is, it, it is certainly very difficult to be able to become a sort of knowledgeable and expert on, on so, so many issues. So we, and, and, and this has been also a struggle. A lot of times people have asked, you know, Northwestern Human Rights Project to, to get involved in, and, in, you know, and start doing work in other areas besides immigration mm-hmm. that, that affect um, immigrant community members. And one of the reasons that we haven't done that is because we feel like, you know, we could start getting to a situation of mission drift, right? Where an organization starts tackling too many things and then you become not good at any of them. And so we would rather just be good at where we are and, and, and be able to sort of set expectations for our client community that, listen, you know, this is what we do and we're not going to overpromise that we're going to be able to solve all of the issues, um, but we're going to focus on this one area. And I think there's, you know, a lot of, um, there's a healthy debate in the nonprofit community about that because I think it also becomes this, you know, there's the idea of silos, right? Then you, then people are only doing one work in this area and are mm-hmm. not connecting the dots and people and our client community do have needs in other areas. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, you know, ongoing conversation. Um, but, but right now I think there's so much happening on immigration policy that just that topic is enough to keep us <laughs> busy, focused on, on, on the news. When it comes to social issues, there is always a groupthink effect. You have people who are extremely opposing something and the other ones extremely supporting it. But there's also some people that are in the middle and they, they really don't know how to feel about the topic and they do understand the complexity of it and, you know, that it takes more than just reading an article. Uh, it, do you have any recommendations for someone who wants to learn more about immigration and you don't really understand the issue and the viable potential paths to fix it do you have any books documentaries or other types of resources that you would recommend well so i think that the most important thing and i completely agree with you alan so that i think there is this challenge and i think i see it in the immigration policy where you have you know i like to say that there's like you know 
30% of the people who are solidly, you know, pro-immigrant uh, or, you know, policies that are, you know, supportive of immigrant communities, there's, you know, probably 30% that are completely opposed and, you know, you're not going to be able to convince those folks, right? And then there's like a large group in the middle that just hasn't thought about it that could probably be swayed but just hasn't, you know, engaged. And in some ways, the fact that the rhetoric seems so heated disengage a lot in the conversation and so that's the the group that i'm usually trying to focus on and um i mean i think that the the ideal way to connect this is on a personal level i mean talking to people and you know whether it's through you know volunteering or working in immigrant communities so that you can actually hear directly from people who are impacted and learn their stories and i think that's where i actually see a lot of changing more than reading something but just understanding on a personal level the impact that policies had, I think that's where I see um, the 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 biggest change in in thinking is when you realize on a personal level that this is not an abstract sort of policy thing, but this is a real uh, a thing. I know that's hard to make happen, you know, uh, because it requires a lot of uh, commitment and a lot of connection, and and to do it in a meaningful way and not just in the sort of the what often to is referred to as sort of like white savior thing, like, Oh, I'm going to go help those, mm -hmm. the, those poor people. Um, and so I think what, uh, you know, sh you know, to get engaged in that is, is trying to, you know, understand and, and, and read. We have on our website, we have uh, a number of resources that we have. We, we recorded this, this session that we, uh, with the Seattle public library called immigration One One, which is trying to sort of explain in lay terms, how the immigration system works and and all those barriers, right? Like the realities of what people experience, uh, and so we try to do these presentations to try to inform uh, people in the community. Like this is this is what it you know what it's like, um, and so those things are good. There's you know there's some good books out there. Um, um, there's a book uh, Enrique's Journey by by Sonia Nazario that that tells a, a, mm -hmm. a powerful story of of children fleeing uh, Central America. Uh, that I think is a is a good. Um, uh, example of that is some you know good documentaries uh, frontline did some good pieces on on immigration detention um and so um i think you know there's a lot of resources out there but i think ultimately i want to emphasize that i think people need to get to know people on a on a local level mm -hmm. i think that's where i think the most change happens no i know we're almost uh about to run out of time um uh, name one country that you think has the best immigration system in the world? I, I don't know that I think there's a country that it really has like the perfect system. Um, I think... Is there one that has a better system than the rest? Well, it, the problem is that the, the, the systems depend on, on um, you know, in some areas things are better, like, you know, Canada um, in their, their refugee and, and asylum program is, is uh, much better. Um, you know, I think Germany... For all the problems that it's had in the past, it's it's showing the last few years. It's shown tremendous generosity in the number of people that it's that it's allowed uh, into the country. Mm -hmm. um, but but no, I mean it's not that the it, there's also a lot of problems with with the way that Germany, for example, has approached the issue of citizenship. So the problem is that it's a mixed bag, and there's mm -hmm. no country I would say like oh they're wonderful, right? Um, and, and I think that's been one of the challenging things about the U.S. is that we've gone through these periods where we've been very generous and, and have allowed people in, but there's also been this policy at the same time that's been really negative. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, I don't want to be sort of 
simply competing, but I want to, I want to have the country live up to its, its values and its ideals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we're just uh, very far away from that right now. Now, really quick, I have a new section. It's called, uh, the how I work section. This is just to learn more about your productivity behind Jorge. Um, and ideally, let's just have one word for each question. And if you don't have one top of mind, let's just skip it. Okay. Uh, for the first one, obviously, it's more than one word. But what was your morning routine like briefly? Uh, my <laughs> morning routine, and my, my wife makes fun of, of me for this because I always you know, come downstairs, empty the dishwasher, make breakfast and then go through my usual, you know, shower dress and get out the door. But it's very, it's very precise, similar steps. One word that best describe how you work. One word. Collaboratively. Mm. Current computer. Just got a Surface, a Microsoft Surface. Mm. Current mobile device. Uh, have an iPhone. Apps, software tools you can't live without. Let's just keep it at three. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I I don't know if the mail app, <laughs> but yeah. certainly that one, uh, and, and texting and, and the Google search. What everyday thing are you better at than everyone else? Everyday thing, driving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's your workspace setup like? Messy. I have a I now have a standing desk, so I moved mm. to that to that thing. But it's a but I'm I'm a messy uh, person on my desk. <laughs> What's your best time-saving life hack? Ooh. Um, I, I think I'm going to skip that one. There I, you go. I don't think I have a good one. I think I'm going to get rid of that one because everybody <laughs> skips it. What's your favorite to-do list manager? Uh, <laughs> I, it, 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 um, I've been using Wonderlist. Wonderlist. What do you listen to while at work if you ever listen to anything? I, I don't listen to music. Right. It's too distracting for me. Uh, what are you currently reading? Um, or I, listening these days? Um, or reading reading books, books-wise. Mm -hmm. um, so I am reading um, The Pillar of Fire, which is uh, one of the trilogy of books that Taylor Branch did on the civil rights movement. What's your sleep routine like? Uh, I stay up late, and I'm usually reading, you know, uh, put my kids to bed. And so by the time I get, I, I my, my wife and I call it my second work day, which is like after we put the kids to bed, then I go back and do email, which is probably not a healthy thing and, and probably do everything that the doctors and experts would say not to do, um, but uh, end up, you know, doing email and responding. What time you wake up? What time you go to sleep? So I usually go to bed uh, 1230 and usually wake up around 7, 715. Best advice advice you ever received? Um, don't think too highly of yourself. Hmm. Uh, before the last question, where can people find you online or learn more about you and your work? Um, so our website for the um, organization is nwirp.org. Uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, I am the, the, the actual Jorge Baron. Uh, so it's uh, at Jorge Baron mm -hmm. uh, on Twitter. And uh, then, of course, we have our Facebook page at NERP, also facebook.com slash NWIRP. Mm -hmm. I'll add the links in the show notes. And final question. If today was your last day on Earth and everything you've created was all to disappear, but you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life, what would those be? Well, I would say I've I've said that there's there's four things that people should be doing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push mm -hmm. to do four, and that's you know learn, teach, love, um, and uh, learn, 
uh, teach, love, and share. Um, and and I try to think of my life in those four areas. Like how do how am I learning? How am I teaching? How am I helping other people? How am I sharing what I have with others? My knowledge, my you know, my mm-hmm. life, my time, and then just loving not only the world but what what we do each day. Um, mm-hmm. Loving you know life and being happy where we are and 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 that to me is important i like it love learn teach and share Mm -hmm. thank you so much jorge great thank you and that was my interview with jorge baron a couple of quick announcements before you leave for reference you can access these episodes notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash bts ep016 again that's bit.ly slash bts ep016 finally if you enjoy listening to this interview the best way to support me on this podcast is by leaving a review on itunes thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you <laughs>